Hello, everyone, and welcome to a short, abbreviated, special episode of The Problem with Reading. Uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And we are here to bring you just a few special items. You may have noticed over the course of the years of the show that we have mentioned many a time Walker Percy, uh, one of our favorite writers. He is one of our favorite writers, and we have uh, quite a few memories uh, due to his exact thoughts. Uh, we've, we've shared a lot of his literature, we've thrown rift on his ideas quite a bit, and in general, I would say my life is better for him. Yeah, pretty much. He's sort of like the Joseph Smith to our own personal brand of Mormonism. You know, he, he found the tablets, wrote a couple of great books, in particular, uh, one called Lost in the Cosmos, which Stephen evangelized to me and I've evangelized to several other people because it really is truly a fantastic book. But he has many other works, uh, Southern Catholic writer, very interesting stuff to say. His sort of life story is that he was a doctor then caught tuberculosis and ended up spending a long time in a sanatorium and read a bunch of Kierkegaard and it broke his brain. Then he became an existentialist and, uh, you know, very edgy and, 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 and cool. No matter what I say, what we say about him, we are selling him short. So we hoped today just to give a couple, a couple readings from Walker Percy, some of our favorite selections, perhaps to point towards a future happier time when we'll give him a full episode treatment. So now, uh, without further ado, our first reading from Walker Percy. The Fearful Self. Why the Self is so afraid of being found out. A recent poll asked people what they feared most. A majority of respondents agreed in ranking one fear above all others, above fear of sickness, accidents, crime, war, even death. It is the fear of speaking before a group, stage fright. Yet, in the conventional objective scientific view, man is an organism among other organisms, and a man should therefore not be terrified to be surrounded by his own kind. Other like organisms, who are not merely not hostile, but by the very nature of the occasion well disposed. And to open his mouth and speak in a language he has learned from his fellow men. A wolf howling alone in a wolf pack doesn't get stage fright. Question. What is so frightening to so many people about speaking to an audience? A. Is it because the ever-present chance of making a fool of oneself before one person is multiplied by the number of listeners? So that an audience of 50 persons is 50 times more terrifying than one? Is an audience of 50 million a million times more terrifying than 50? B. Is it because, since one person, friend or stranger, is often difficult to deal with, 50 people are 50 times more difficult? C. Is it because, say, with an audience of 500, you are being looked at by at least 499 people whose gaze you cannot defend against by looking back? That is, you are being seen from this or that vulnerable angle where your mask or persona may not be in place. D. Is it because you fear a total failure of performance such as never happened in the history of the world, so that not one word will come to your mind and world chaos will follow? As evidence of such a danger, note the uneasiness of a play-going audience when an actor forgets his lines, or a congregation when a preacher falls silent for no apparent reason. The escalating terror of such a silence is a public phenomenon. Five seconds of such silence is a very long time. Ten seconds is almost intolerable. E. Is it because you know that what you present to the world is a persona, a mask, that it is a very fragile disguise, that God alone knows what is underneath since you clearly do not, perhaps nothing less than the self itself, and that if the persona fails, what is revealed is unspeakable, literally, because you can't speak it, 
like what was revealed when the Phantom of the Opera had his mask ripped off, a no-face, a vacancy, a hole which is much worse than the ugliest face, so frightening, in fact, that you remember, as a child, crawling under the seat in the movie. Thoughts experiment. If you are a shy person, which of the following situations is the most terrifying to you? Which is the least terrifying? In the first, you are a mid-echelon executive in the sales division of a large company in which you are both successful and well-liked. You are scheduled to deliver a speech at the annual banquet, an honor. You have months to prepare. In the second, you are the character Richard Hannay in Hitchcock's The 39 Steps. Pursued down a street by his enemies, he ducks into a doorway, which happens to be a stage door, and finds himself on stage at a political rally, where he is mistaken for the guest speaker and introduced. He has not the faintest idea of what he is supposed to talk about. In the third, the world's population has been destroyed by nuclear wars. Only you have survived. The Earth is invaded by extraterrestrial beings. They capture you and haul you up before a large tribunal and make it known to you that you must give an account for yourself, what you are doing here, why you should be spared, etc. Explain your choice. Thought experiment. Explain why Moses was tongue-tied and stage-struck before his fellow Jews, but had no trouble talking to God. Explain on what grounds Christ told his followers not to worry if they were arrested and required to testify before a court of their enemies. You will know what to say, he told them. Did he imply that it is easier to talk to enemies than to friends, and that the real problem arises when one is required to address one's fellow Christians in the church at Corinth? The Fearful Self, Part 2. Why the Self is so afraid of being stuck with another self. Johnny Carson, when questioned about his aplomb on the stage before a TV audience of millions, replied, Sure, I'm at ease up here, because I'm in control. But when I'm at a cocktail party and caught in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, panic city. Question. What do Johnny Carson and other shy people fear when they are caught in a one-on-one -on -one conversation at a cocktail party? That is, what is the worst case, the worst thing that can happen? A. That you can't think of anything interesting to say and that the other person will be bored. B. That the other person has nothing to say that you want to hear and you know you will be bored. C. That neither of you has anything to say and therefore the world will come to an end, or rather, something worse than the end of the world, or, as Carson would say, panic city. That is, a predicament in which all options open to you are more intolerable than the end of the world. D. That there are only two means of escape both of which are intolerable. Either you leave, which will hurt the other person's feelings, or the other person leaves, which will hurt your feelings. E. That you will be exposed, that is, that the unique unformulability, the singular knot, which you secretly believe yourself to be, will be exposed at last, the one black hole among a billion other ordinary stars. Check one. Thought experiment. Imagine that you are Johnny Carson and find yourself caught in an intolerable one-on-one -on -one conversation at a cocktail party from which there is no escape. Which of the two following events would you prefer to take place? 1. That the other person become more and more witty and charming. The music more beautiful. The scene transformed to a villa at Capri on the loveliest night of the year while you find yourself more and more at a loss. Or 2. That you are still in Beverly Hills and the chandeliers begin to rattle. A 7.5 Richter earthquake takes place and presently you find yourself and the other person alive and well, and talking under a mound of rubble. If your choice is two, explain why it is possible for a true conversation to take place under the conditions of two, but not one. It's a very common occurrence, and I'm not necessarily saying it for the podcast. <laughs> it is so hard to follow him up.
Walker Percy is very hard to follow, especially in Lost in the Cosmos, because he seems to get at very core things in a metaphorical way. It's actually quite reminiscent of Master and his Emissary, which is to say that there are things that are true that are very difficult to make explicit. And I think one of Percy's skills in Lost in the Cosmos is setting up these situations where there is this implicit, unspoken, perhaps unspeakable truth that he's getting at that you get an inkling of <laughs> and then characteristically, due to its nature, have a hard time saying anything about it. No, I think you're right. I was actually thinking very along the lines of what you were saying, that Percy, especially in Lost in the Cosmos, but in a lot of his writings, is a master of the implicit. He's a master at dancing around this thing that you know, you, you can sort of tell what he's pointing at, but when you try to actually pin it down, it escapes you. Um, and he, he's a master at dancing around that. I, I, I recall when I when I first read it, I, I remember it was it was at a time in my life when I was so I was about ready to graduate and we've we've discussed the uh, the the postgraduate depression that can come about. And I remember reading through Lost in the Cosmos and being stunned at the fact that he was somehow able to put into words a lot of the fears that I had. But at the same time, when I tried to pin down what exactly those fears were, they would just kind of dissipate. And I suppose on the whole, uh, I am left at a lack of words. And uh, Percy, as always, is able to, uh, to encapsulate that which we can't. Thankfully, though, Walker Percy is a practical person as a Southern man. Uh, he would not leave us without recourse, with only the implicit. Thus, our second reading. Bourbon Neat. This is not written by a connoisseur of bourbon. 99% of bourbon drinkers know more about bourbon than I do. It is about the aesthetic of bourbon drinking in general, and in particular, of knocking it back neat. I can hardly tell one bourbon from another, unless the other is very bad. Some bad bourbons are more memorable than good ones. For example, I can recall being broke with some friends in Tennessee and deciding to have a party and being able to afford only two-fifths of a $1.75 bourbon called Two Natural, whose label showed dice coming up five and two. Its taste was memorable. The psychological effect was also notable. After knocking back two or three shots over a period of a half hour, the three male drinkers looked at each other and said in a single voice, Where are the women? I have not been able to locate this remarkable bourbon since. Not only should connoisseurs of bourbon not read this article, neither should persons preoccupied with the perils of alcoholism, cirrhosis, esophageal hemorrhage, cancer of the palate, and so forth, all real enough dangers. I, too, deplore these afflictions. But, as between these evils and the aesthetic of bourbon drinking, that is, the use of bourbon to warm the heart, to reduce the enemy of the late 20th century, to cure the old phlegm of Wednesday afternoons, I choose the aesthetic. What, after all, is the use of not having cancer, cirrhosis, and such, if a man comes home from work every day at 5.30 to the exurbs of Montclair or Memphis, and there is grass growing, and the little family looking not quite at him but just past the side of his head, and there's Cronkite on the tube and the smell of pot roast in the kitchen, and inside and outside in the pretty exurb has settled the noxious particles and the sadness of the old dying western world, and him thinking, Jesus, is this it? Listening to Cronkite and the grass growing? If I should appear to be suggesting that such a man proceed as quickly as possible to anesthetize his cerebral cortex by ingesting ethyl alcohol, the point is being missed. Or part of the point. The joy of bourbon drinking is not the pharmacological effect of the C2H5OH on the cortex, but rather the instant of the whiskey being knocked back, 
and the little explosion of Kentucky-USA sunshine in the cavity of the nasopharynx, and the hot, bosky bite of Tennessee summertime. Aesthetic considerations to which the effect of the alcohol is, if not dispensable, at least secondary. The pleasure of knocking back bourbon lies in the plane of the aesthetic, but at an opposite pole from connoisseurship. My preference for the former is or is not deplorable depending on one's value system, that is to say, how one balances out the epicurean virtues of evocation of time and memory and the recovery of self and the past from the fogged in disoriented Western world. In Kierkegaardian terms, the use of bourbon to such an end is a kind of aestheticized religious mode of existence, whereas connoisseurship, the discriminating but single-minded stimulation of sensory and organs, is the aesthetic of damnation. Two exemplars of the two aesthetics come to mind. Imagine Clifton Webb, scarf at throat, sitting at Cape d'Antibes on a perfect day, the little wavelets of the Mediterranean sparkling in the sunset, and he's savoring a 1959 mountain Rothschild. Then, imagine William Faulkner, having finished Absalom Absalom, drained, written out, pissed off, feeling himself over the edge and out of it, nowhere but he goes somewhere, his favorite hunting place in the delta wilderness of the big sunflower river, and still feeling bad with his hunting cronies and maybe even a little phony, which he was, what with him trying to pretend that he was one of them, a farmer, hunkered down in the cold and rain after the hunt, after honorable passing up the does and seeing no bucks, Shivering and snot-nosed takes out a flat pint of any bourbon at all, and flat-foots about a third of it. He shivers again, but not from the cold. Bourbon does for me what the piece of cake did for Proust. 1926. As a child, watching my father in Birmingham, in the exurbs, living never to number six fairway of the new country club, him disdaining both the bathtub gin and white lightning of the time, a gins his own bourbon in a charcoal keg, on his hands and knees in the basement, sucking on a siphon, a matter of gravity requiring cheek pressed against cement floor, the siphon getting going, the decanter ready, the first hot spurt in his mouth not spat out. 1933. My uncle's parlor in the Mississippi. Delta and toddies on a Sunday afternoon, the prolonged and meditative tinkle of silver spoon against crystal to dissolve the sugar. Talk, tinkle, talk, the talk mostly political. Roosevelt is doing a good job. No, the son of a bitch is betraying his class. 1934. Drinking at a Delta dance. The boys in bicewing jackets and tab collars, tough talking and profane, and also scared of girls and therefore safe in the men's room. Somebody passes along bootleg bourbon in a Coke bottle. It's awful. Tears start from eyes, faces turn red. Hot damn, that's good. 1935. Drinking at a football game in college. UNC versus Duke. One has a blind date. One is lucky. She's beautiful. Her clothes are the color of the fall leaves and her face turns up like a flower. But what to say to her, let alone what to do, and whether she is nice or hot, a distinction made in those days. But what to say? Take a drink, by now, from a proper concave hip flask, a long way from the Delta Coke bottle, with a hinge top. Will she have a drink? No, but that's all right. The taste of bourbon, cream of Kentucky, and the smell of her fuse with the brilliant Carolina fall and the sounds of the crowd and the hit of the lineman in a single synthesis. 1941. Drinking mint juleps. Famed southern drink, though in the deep south not really drunk much. In fact, they are drunk so seldom that when, say, on Derby Day, someone gives a julep party, people drink them like cocktails, forgetting that a good julep holds at least five ounces of bourbon. Men fall face down unconscious, women wander the woods disconsolate and amnesic, full of thoughts of Khalil Gibran and the Limberlost. Would you believe the first mint julep I had was not sitting on a column porch, but in the booze smoker bar of the New York Hotel with a Bellevue nurse in 1941? The nurse, a nice upstate girl, head floor nurse, brisk, swift, good-looking, Bellevue nurses are the best in this world, and this one was the best of Bellevue, at least the best looking. The julep, an atrocity, a heavy syrupy bourbon and water in a small glass clotted with ice. But good. 
How could two women be more different than the beautiful, languid Carolina girl and the swift, handsome girl from Utica, best Dutch stock? One thing was sure. Each was to be courted, loved, drunk with, with bourbon. I should have stuck with bourbon. We changed to gin fizzes because the bartender said he came from New Orleans and could make good ones. He could, and did. They were delicious. What I didn't know was that they were made with raw egg albumin, and I was allergic to it. Driving her home to Brooklyn and being in love. What a lovely, fine, strapping, smart girl. And thinking of being invited into her apartment where she lived alone and here offering to cook a little supper, and of the many kisses and sweet love that already existed between us and was bound to grow apace, when, on the Brooklyn Bridge itself, my upper lip began to swell and little sparks of light flew past the corner of my eye like St. Elmo's fire. In the space of 30 seconds, my lips stuck out a full three-quarters inch, like a shelf, like Mortimer snurred. Not only was kissing out of the question, but my eyes swelled shut. I made it across the bridge, pulled to the curb, and fainted. Whereupon, this noble nurse drove me back to Bellevue, gave me a shot, and put me to bed. Anybody who monkeys around with gin and egg whites deserves what he gets. I should have stuck with bourbon, and have from that day to this. So this is, I suppose, in some ways, the exact opposite of a lot of his dancing around true things in Lost in the Cosmos and other essays, or at least in part it is, because he is... 100% absolutely spot on with his understanding of the use of particular sensations, including that of bourbon uh, in particular, to evoke certain memories. But whenever, so whenever Brevin, Sam, and I are together, we always create Cotton Walker's Uncle Will's favorite mint julep receipt, which he gives the recipe to at the very end of this essay. And now, certainly, whenever I have this recipe, it just brings back this whole host of memories and feelings and conversations and philo philosophical dialogues. And just in general, like it, it evokes this whole atmosphere. It, and perhaps maybe it's the strength of the bourbon that gets me, but, it, but uh, the atmosphere certainly is palpable. And so I, th I think here he is both putting his finger on a very concrete thing. Asso associate experiences with other or other experiences, or rather, associate experiences with sensations. I think would be how I'd say it. And him being, I think he's a trained psychiatrist, so he'd be very well aware of the fact that. I mean, this is just conditioning. It's you you associate food with the bell, as it were. But there's also something deeper that he's driving at. That he's again dancing around. There is an aesthetic that comes about that isn't. It's not that necessarily this bourbon itself is good or that the recipe itself is inherently good, but it's the fact that you're bringing goodness into it and that you're associating it with goodness. And there's, again, difficult to pin down because Percy's doing what Percy does best, but there is certainly something there uh, that, that is more than just mere association. That, and that, that's one of the reasons why I love this essay so much. I mean, as we say, uh, inspired by this essay, drink bourbon, make memories. And it is very much the same for me in that having a mint julep or more specifically Cudden Walker's Uncle Will's favorite mint julep receipt uh, type of mint julep immediately brings back a whole series of somewhat hazy flashes of all of the different times that I've had that specific drink. And while I might not always, I, I, I couldn't name every single time that I've had it, they've all had, they've all been had in the same spirit. And that's something. Hey, there we go. Uh, they've, <laughs> hey, hey, yeah, yeah. They've they've all been had in the same spirit, um, which is something almost like a treasure, actually, to look back and realize that you've created this 
host of memories, this host of associations that you can't create from scratch. You have to live it over time. And that's just something that we've done over the past four years or so, I would say five years even. And I think I can remember actually the first time you made this for us, Stephen, uh, at the summer at the summer uh, yeah barbecue. you guys were graduating i think right yeah the summer uh before or immediately after we graduated from undergrad and and you made everyone in the house who wanted one this uh specific julep recipe and every glass that we had in the house because it was a house full of men so we had no good <laughs> glassware from then and then years and years on it's a powerful totem uh and also a commitment to an evening when you say all right are we doing this we're doing this. It's like, all right, the evening's locked in. Uh-huh. You're not going anywhere after those. <laughs> no. And if there's one thing for sure when we have an evening of Walker Percy's is that it will be anything but boring. Uh, however, boredom is one thing that Walker Percy is especially concerned with in this old dying Western world, as he says, which is our final Walker Percy reading. The Bored Self. Why the self is the only object in the cosmos which gets bored. The word boredom did not enter the language until the 18th century. No one knows its etymology. One guess is that bore may derive from the French verb boyer, which means to stuff. Question. Why was there no such word before the 18th century? A. Was it because people were not bored before the 18th century? But wasn't Caligula bored? B. Was it because people were bored but didn't have a word for it? C. Was it because people were too busy trying to stay alive to get bored? But what about the idle English royalty and noblemen? D. Is it because there is a special sense in which, for the past two or three hundred years, the self has perceived itself as a leftover, which cannot be accounted for by its own objective view of the world, and that in spite of an ever-heightened self-consciousness, increased leisure, ever more access to cultural and recreational facilities, ever more instruction on self-help, self-growth, self-enrichment, the self feels ever more imprisoned in itself. No. Worse than imprisoned, because a prisoner at least knows he is imprisoned, and sets store by the freedom awaiting him, and the world to be open, when in fact the self is not, and it is not, a state of affairs, which has to be called something besides imprisonment, e.g. boredom. Boredom is the self being stuffed with itself. E. Is it because of a loss of sovereignty in which the self yields up plenary claims to every sector of the world to the respective experts and claimants of these sectors? and that such a surrender leads to an impoverishment which must be called by some other name, e.g. boredom. F. Is it because the self first had the means of understanding itself through myth, albeit incorrectly, later understood itself through religion as a creature of God, and now has the means of understanding the cosmos through positive science, but not itself because the self cannot be grasped by positive science, and that therefore the self can perceive itself only as a ghost in a machine, how else can a ghost feel otherwise towards a machine than bored? Check one or more. Question. Why is it no other species but man gets bored? Under the circumstances in which a man gets bored, a dog goes to sleep. Thought experiment. Imagine that you are a member of a tour visiting Greece. The group goes to the Parthenon. It is a bore. Few people even bother to look. It looked better in the brochure. So people take half a look, mostly take pictures, Remark on the serious erosion by acid rain. You are puzzled. Why should one of the glories and fonts of Western civilization, viewed under pleasant conditions, good weather, good hotel room, good food, good guide, be a bore? Now imagine under what set of circumstances a viewing of the Parthenon would not be a bore. For example, 
You are a NATO colonel defending Greece against Soviet assault. You are in a bunker in downtown Athens, binoculars propped on sandbags. It is dawn. A medium-range missile attack is underway. Half a million Greeks are dead. Two missiles bracket the Parthenon. The next will surely be a hit. Between columns of smoke, a ray of golden light catches the portico. Are you bored? Can you see the Parthenon? Explain. That is probably my favorite thought experiment of the book. Uh, it, I remember first reading it, and it, it's haunted me ever since. Especially, for me, it has some amount of personal pathos, uh, because I, I spent a semester in Greece, and I remember seeing the Parthenon a couple of times, and each time coming up to it, thinking that I would, I suppose, not be bored, as it were. I, I would see it and kind of think I should be feeling something more, but there would always be kind of this, oh, well, that's cool. Okay, now what? And this was the first time, as I said previously, that feeling was actually put into words and he, he started circling around it uh, and, and started saying, this is, this, there's something underneath this. There's something behind this and started que asking questions like, well, what circumstances would you not feel bored? And I think those sort of questions are extremely important. I think this one highlights one pattern that Walker Percy goes to, as well as one core part of his thought, which is viewing the individual as a sovereign wayfarer, responsible in many senses for taking their fate into their own hands, as any good existentialist would, would say. Along with that comes this constant preoccupation with life and death. And Walker Percy is someone who experienced a lot of that with a lot of suicide in his family. And that comes out in, in other of his chapters and others of his writings. But it is that balance of feeling most alive and most close to death, the most natural conversation coming in a disaster scenario, the extremes of the human condition bringing out things that might otherwise be hidden or layered or shaded by civilization. As you said, are you bored? That's about all the time we have for this short, special, perhaps julep sweet episode of The Problem with Reading. So for everyone here at the aforementioned podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And see you over a glass of Cudden Walker Uncle Will's mint julep sweet. You won't be bored. <laughs> <laughs>